Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, good morning, everybody. We are are going to dive in here into Zechariah chapter two, and we're actually gonna finish a whole chapter today, if you can believe it. Um, If I can get my my in-laws back in here, we can get started. You guys come on back in. Um, We're gonna take a whole chapter today, so we spent we spent three weeks finishing Zechariah chapter one and kind of laying the groundwork for the book and the message and what, what God is doing through Zechariah and the children of Israel in this time. And uh, today we're actually going to take an entire chapter. It's not that long, uh, but there's a, it's a peculiar vision that, that Zechariah gets on uh, the man and the measuring line. And we're going to see towards the end of this chapter who that man is. And it's not other than Jesus. And so there's a lot to learn from this vision uh, prophetically. There's a lot to learn about what the Lord's plan is for Israel and his people. And it's just, it's going to be awesome. So before we get started, let's open up in prayer as we always should. Lord, we thank you so much again for this time together. God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of your word. We pray that, God, you would anoint this place and overflow this building with your presence, God. Lord, you are the teacher. You, by your spirit and your anointing, we have the ability to understand and to learn everything in your word. And we pray that you would teach us as the author and the finisher of our faith. And Lord, we thank you again for this time and this incredible book, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so as we're we're going through... I like I always pray before we start these messages, but you know, First John two twenty seven and twenty eight is is your guiding verse as you're studying the Bible and everything that you need the Holy Spirit, the anointing to teach you all things, because He wrote it down for a purpose and a reason. And you know, studying the Bible, it's 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 sometimes confusing, right? People read it and they don't quite understand it. But the beauty of it is, is that you don't have to understand it. You can ask the Lord, and he will give you understanding of it, and that's the beauty of it. He, if it was an easy read, how many of us would sit down and really seek out the Lord and build our faith through it, right? You would get it and put it aside and move on. Um, it's written so that it is inexhaustible, that we have to spend a lifetime chasing after the Lord and studying it to build up our faith, and so that's your verse. When you are in your daily reading, as everybody in here should be, when you're reading the Bible daily, just pray that over your reading and your study. Pray First John 2, 27 and 28, that the Lord would teach you everything and write down your questions and let him show you exactly what he would have of you out of whatever you're reading. Okay, on our Old Testament timeline here, remember from creation, you've got these eras of history throughout the Old Testament. You have creation and the, up to the flood, the call of Abraham then, the period of the patriarchs, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of Canaan, then you have the period of the judges where every man did what was right in their own eyes. That should sound familiar to how we are today. The period of the kings, 
And then the Babylonian exile for, for disobeying God's word. They were exiled for 70 years. And then you have the post-exile. And on the bottom of that timeline shows you when the Lord wrote each of the books in the Old Testament around that era. So in the post-exile, we've got Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are all contemporaries. So if you remember, Cyrus conquers Persia, and then he gives, I'm sorry, Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. He gives financial incentives to the children of Israel to go back and rebuild the temple. And only a few handful, very small amount, actually take him up on it and go back to lay the groundwork of the temple. And they don't get very far because they're spiritually immature. And as a result, Haggai is raised up to prophesy to them to push on, finish the temple. He goes away. Zechariah is then raised up shortly thereafter to encourage the people to press on to spiritual maturity. And as they go on to spiritual maturity, they would then finish the temple and recommit their relationship to God. Now, just as a reminder, kind of a quick overview of the book that we've been studying Zechariah is widely considered the apocalypse of the Old Testament, and the apocalypse meaning the unveiling. That's what that word means in the Greek. It has nothing to do with destruction, doom, gloom, Armageddon. That just happens to be what comes after the unveiling of Jesus and who he is as the king for all eternity. And he rule rule on the earth, and the world is terrified of that word apocalypse, right? All these movies and everything, but that's all it means is an unveiling of in the Greek. Zechariah is the unveiling of who Jesus is in the Old Testament. It chronicles so much of his life in the book. Uh, The Lord will speak of the stone with seven eyes, which is a very curious link to Revelation. He's going to speak about the throne that Jesus will sit on, Jesus the Nazarene, the king riding on a donkey in chapter 9, the smitten shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and what they do with the money. He's going to talk about Jesus being pierced, and crucifixion wasn't even invented quite yet. He's going to talk about his return in power and destroying his enemies in Zechariah 14, and stepping foot on the Mount of Olives and it splitting in half to allow a river of life to come out of the millennial temple. Now remember, Zechariah's name means whom Yahweh remembers. He's the son of Berkiah, which means Yahweh blesses. Berkiah is the son of Edu which means the appointed time. So from the grandfather down to Zechariah, when you put those genealogies together, it means at the appointed time, Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. And it was an important message for the children of Israel as they're, they're in exile, post-exile, and trying to rebuild the temple. And it's a, it's a message for them, even in the genealogy, that at the appointed time, God will bless you. Yahweh remembers you. And he will build up this temple again and and reestablish you in the land. So it's even in the names, it's just amazing. Okay, in the outline of Zechariah, we've covered Zechariah 1, 1 through 6 was the introduction and the call to repentance that Zechariah had to God's people. In Zechariah 1, starting in verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 15, there are 10 visions or some classify as 8. And Zechariah has these all in one night. God really gets a hold of him and gives him a lot of prophetic visions just in one night. So it probably was a really long night for him, uh, doing a lot of writing through the Holy Spirit and God writing these messages down for his people. But in chapter 1, we covered the riders under the myrtle tree, then the four horns, which dealt with last week, which were the four Gentile powers from Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome that were raised up, that scattered Israel. 
and try to wipe them off the map. And then the four smiths or carpenters that were raised up to put them down. Obviously the fifth kingdom being the beast system that will rise up that will in fact ironically be put down by a carpenter who comes back as the stone cut without hands from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and all over the Bible. Okay, and today then we're going to start chapter 2, the fourth vision of the man with the measuring line. And what is that all about, the man with the measuring line? Okay, in verse 1 here, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, this theme starts in verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So anywhere you see in the Bible, this is kind of a Hebrew, Hebrewism or Hebraism, however you want to say that. Uh, when a measuring line is used, it typically denotes judgment. Okay, anywhere you see that. And here are just a couple of examples. Ezekiel 40 verse 3 and he bought me, brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. In 2 Kings 21, verse 13, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. In other words, God's going to wipe it clean and start over. So you kind of see this throughout the Bible. Look at Isaiah 28, verse 17. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet, and the hell shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. In Jeremiah 20, or 31, verse 39, and the measuring line shall, go, shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill of Garab, and shall compass about to Goath. So you see this theme throughout the Bible. Now, you have to think about, you know, as a, think like kind of a carpenter too, when you take a line to something, you're measuring it of what needs to be cut away, right? How little, how much do you not need of this, whatever this is, a block of wood, a piece of granite, some marble, whatever it is, right? As a, as a worker, as a construction person, minded person, you're cutting away something to reshape it, sand it, make it something usable that you can work with to construct something. It's kind of that idea that the Lord is stretching a line over the city and bringing judgment upon it in terms of their rebellion against God. So it's pretty incredible. Okay, in verse 2 here, Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And said unto him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Okay, so then all of a sudden you've got two angels. So one goes out with the measuring line to measure Jerusalem. Another one runs out and says, hey, go run and speak to this young man, this young man being Zechariah, and talk to him. And said unto him, run and speak to this young man. Now, what he's telling him Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, when you look at Jerusalem today, this is a picture of the old city. You can see the white outline around the wall that surrounds the old city. And the red line is even a wall that surrounds what we call the Temple Mount, 
Okay, so today it is not a city where they dwell without walls inhabited safely. Now, for the Hebrew mindset, and you have to think about in ancient times, dwelling within walls meant security. It meant safety. It meant when a, when a rival kingdom or another army came to try to take you over, you had some security there. You were high up. You could look out. You could see them coming. You could set the walls. They would, they would try to set them as defense, right? And that's why when there's a breach in the walls or a, uh, somebody does a siege and surrounds the walls, that's why it would take so long. Okay, they would, a lot of times what they would do, these armies would come and they would besiege a city and put it around and they would just starve the people out within the walls. So anyone that came out, they would murder or try to kill. They would keep supplies from going in and any supplies or people from coming out. So, but they saw it as security. Now, what I wanted you to notice is they are dwelling very much with walls to this day. But it's an important note because it will be inhabited as towns without walls. So it's both kind of physically and metaphorically speaking. It's, it's both are true. Because this attribute is one of their characteristics that Israel's enemies notice about them in the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So if you haven't studied those passages, it's a coalition of modern-day Russia, Turkey, and Iran that all come together to come down and to take great wealth from Israel, to try to wipe them off the map and take the, over their wealth. And right now, as you study Israel, there is nothing about them that is wealthy, wealthy enough that would make rival nations want to come take them over. The land they occupy is one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. So just think about that. That's how small they are right now. Now, their boundary, according to Genesis and what God promised Abram, will be from the river Nile in Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. That's how much they will grow, and they'll finally occupy all of that land safely in the millennium. So when you study this prophetically, there's a war that happens in Psalms 83 that the surrounding nations want to wipe out Israel just because they hate them. Their hatred for them draws them to the point where they just attack. Okay, and you could see that today with Iraq and all the, the things going on in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and the Golan Heights and uh, what, what the world calls Palestine, which are really the ancient Philistines. They want to wipe Israel out. So there's a war that happens in Psalms 83 that likely happens before this. And they will expand their borders and then Ezekiel 38, they're going to grow wealth because they take over oil-rich nations. They'll become very prosperous. And then look what Ezekiel 38 verse 11 says. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. See, to the enemy, it's an invitation that they're dwelling securely in kind of in a lackadaisical fashion. And so unwalled villages, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates. So if you go back and just think about this giant wall around Jerusalem, you know, does that go away in one of the wars? Is it simply just metaphorically that, hey, they think they're going to be dwelling without walls mentally in safety? You know, one will, time will tell, but that's an interesting connection. Then Zechariah 4, 
Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. And that's going to what one of the things that draws the Ezekiel 38 coalition into attack them. Okay, in verse 5 here, for I saith, for I saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Okay, a wall of fire. Now, this should remind all of us of the pillar of fire that protected the children of Israel by night at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. So remember, when they're at the Red Sea, their backs are against the wall. Remember Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, of a cloud, to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire, to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, when you read about this further, I found this fascinating in Exodus 14, verse 24. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked upon the host of the Egyptians. So this is when they're against the Red Sea. Remember, they don't know what they're going to do yet. And the children of Israel are complaining to Moses. Did you just draw us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Why are we here? And Moses goes to the Lord and it's like, Lord, what in the world are we doing here? And the Lord has this wall of fire put up. And the children of Israel are between the wall of fire and the Red Sea camped out there in the wilderness up against the desert. The Egyptians are camped on the other side of the wall of fire. And look what it says in verse 24 that the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. I think that's amazing that the Lord actually stared them down through the wall of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was on the opposing side and I was sitting there chasing down these people after everything that just happened in Egypt and, the, and culminating with the death of the firstborn, and I'm chasing them to the Red Sea, and there's a wall of fire, and God himself is staring at me, saying, basically just staring you down like the fight's coming, buddy. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would not pursue them further. And I, I would kind of go back to Egypt and try to start over maybe, and, and maybe repent. But these guys were so arrogant that when God parts the Red Sea, Pharaoh thought he parted it for them. And chased them through the Red Sea, obviously, and the walls collapse. And we've talked about that. But, you know, the Lord has this pillar of fire. That's actually one of the prayers he had for us on Wednesday night over in the youth space. And what I want to encourage you about is that the Lord has that same promise of protection around you. And what you need to realize, especially from the book of Job, when you study it, that anything that comes before you as a believer is father-filtered. It has to go through that pillar of fire first. God has to allow it. And if, if you are submissive to him, I should clarify, if you're not, if you're living in rebellion and willful sin, uh, very much like Samson, God's hedge of protection is just removed. And you're kind of fair game at that point. So just think about that in your daily life. But the pillar of, of fire, it followed them through the wilderness. I would love to be um, I'm hoping when we get to heaven, we can, I don't know, have a DVR or something and go back in time and watch this event. Because I'd love to see if, did the Egyptians see his eyes in the pillar of fire? Did they see him staring them down? What did they see? But it's just amazing that he's looking at them through this hedge of protection. 
it also reminded me, remember 2 Kings 16, when Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the Syrian army on the mountains, and, and he wakes up, and wakes up Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, and he says, hey, what, what are we going to do? We are surrounded by the enemy. And remember, Elisha says, hey, don't worry. Those that are with us are way more than those that are out there. And the servant's going, what are you talking about? This is just me and you in this little house here. And Elisha prays, and the Lord opens his eyes, and he sees the chariots of fire surrounding the enemy that were way more than that army. So just think about that. If you ever get a, a view or just think in your, in your own life, What's going on behind the scenes that you and I can't see in those other six and a half dimensions we don't have access to right now? There is a warfare going on for you and I, and the Lord has, is, has outnumbered the enemy greatly. Okay, verse six here, ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Now, the Lord uses this phrase, four winds. You know, the Bible even uses at times the phrase, the four corners of the earth, and, and people like to use that to say, see, the earth is flat, it's got four corners, and it's, a, it's a, actually a scientific word from God because there are four corners of the earth, mag- magnetically speaking, uh, not physically, but magnetically, north, south, east, and west, there are four corners of the earth. So just keep that in mind, but there are four winds They're often used to describe the scattering or regathering of a people. And he uses this in Jeremiah 49, actually to prophetically describe how the Iranians from southern Iran will probably be scattered after some kind kind of nuclear event. So this hasn't happened yet. It's in Jeremiah 49, verse 36. And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of of heaven, and will scatter them toward all those winds, and there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. Now, when you study this, I'll, I think I put in a map, but I may not have. If you look in modern-day Iran, there's a mountain range kind of in the southern portion of that nation. From that mountain range to the Gulf is ancient Elam. It's what we call modern-day Iran. It's a specific area of that nation. And it happens to be where the Bashar nuclear reactor is being built. And when you study Jeremiah 49 in those passages, something happens that's an event against the leadership of Elam, or what's modern-day Iran. It's against the leadership. And as a result, there's some kind of event that a lot of people speculate could be a nuclear disaster of some kind. And the people of Elam are scattered all around the world. They're fleeing. And God mentions at the, in the millennium, he will put his throne back there so that he will have a righteous city there at one point. But in Ezekiel, God uses the four winds to bring back his people Israel. Remember the dry bones vision in Ezekiel 37 verse 9? Then he said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. And breathe upon these slain that they may live. And remember, Ezekiel sees the dry bones come together, they're shaking, and it's the rebirth of the nation Israel. Now, part of that prophecy has been fulfilled the regathering of his people to a nation. That happened on May 14th of 1948, in a day, as Isaiah sarcastically asked. The other part of that prophecy has not happened which he will breathe and give the Holy Spirit to Israel, all of Israel. 
Now, if you're a, a descendant of the Jews and you're in the church, you do have the Holy Spirit. But God promises in the millennial, in the millennium, in his millennial reign, he will breathe into them and give all of them Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Okay, during the tribulation, the angels actually hold back the four winds. In Revelation 7.1, if you remember this from a few years ago. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. There's that, there's that phrase, the four magnetic corners, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. The Lord's going to use the four winds to gather the Jews after the tribulation when Jesus returns in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven. That's the term of angels. Remember, Satan took one third with him from Revelation 12. And the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, <clears throat> that's one of the passages you can take to, you've got to remember from the word of God, you have to rightly divide the word of truth. And when you divide, when you study this, it's a lot of people get messed up a little bit on blurring the, the second and third return of Jesus the second time he returns, we meet him in the air, and only those that love him see him and handle him. And we meet him in the air, and he takes us home in the rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Revelation 4.1. It's all over the Bible. I've got notes on that if anybody needs those. The second time he comes from Revelation 19, we are with him. And in this verse, you'll see every eye will see him and mourn him at his coming. Because he's coming back in judgment and in power, not to wash our feet as a, as a humble carpenter. In verse 7, deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations, which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. What an amazing phrase. Don't you want to be called the apple of his eye? Here's the creator of the universe. And what I love, the first time I ever read through the Bible cover to cover, I made a list. A list of every name of, of God in the Bible and a list of everything that he calls us in the Bible. And one of my favorite phrases that, that he uses of you and I is his inheritance. And for a, for a will and a testament to be enacted, there has to be a death. And that death was none other than Jesus. He had to die so that his will, his inheritance, you, you and I, if you're born again, would make it through to the other side. Because when it's all said and done after the millennium, the only thing that goes through to the new heaven and the new earth is, is us. We're it. We're with him. And what he calls Israel here, he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. God does not take it lightly when his people are persecuted. He takes that very serious. And he uses this phrase only one other time in the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. Look at this. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lost of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, 
And in the waste howling wilderness, he led him about. He instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. That's the only other place he uses that phrase in the whole Bible. But God loves you that much. You, you and I are the most important thing in all of creation. That's why there's such a war for us. Nothing else matters to him. He could speak it all back into existence again. But you and I, the piece of you as a triune being, you are body, soul, and spirit mirrored after God, right, as a triune being. Your spirit, that piece of you that is eternal, it is eternal whether you like it or not, and it cannot be destroyed because it's made in his image. And so he can't just wipe it out. It's, it's eternal. And that's the unfortunate thing with a lot of people. They don't realize that they're going to spend eternity somewhere. It's just a matter of, do you spend it with Jesus for all eternity in heaven? Because he paid for you to be there. Okay, in verse 9, For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil for their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Now, shaking the hand, you know, how many of you have ever had someone get mad at you in traffic or something, right? And they shake their fist at you. It's kind of that idiom. Uh, in the Middle East, it means something a little deeper and tr- more troubling than in the U.S. If you're in Philadelphia and the light turns green and you don't go immediately, uh, you get a lot of hands shook at you, even if the light's red and you're not driving. It, they, are, they are very impatient out in Philadelphia. If we have anyone in Philadelphia, we love you out there. But they are an impatient people driving, <laughs> I promise. Uh, we lived out there for a while. But shaking the hand, you see that a lot, you know, shaking the fist, so to speak. It's God, it's God being angry at those that are against his people. And so you don't want to be on that side. You do not want to be on the side where God is shaking his fist at you. You want to be on the side where you're the apple of his eye. In verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Now, not, not to go back too far, but just go back for a second. Verse 8, what I want you to notice is notice the change in who's speaking, starting back in verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations. Okay, this is Jesus speaking, starting in verse 8. So just pick that up. He sent me unto the nations. Okay, for behold, I will shake my hand upon them. Go down to verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Now, there's only one person that, it, that all throughout the Bible is promising to come and dwell in the midst of Israel. His name is Yeshua, Yahweh, Jesus in the flesh. And he's speaking and fast-forwarding all the way to the millennium. That's what's happening here. When he dwells with the people of Israel, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in the flesh the second time. Okay, Zechariah 2, verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Now, notice the Lord is, is shifting. He's in the millennium talking now. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord and be what? His people. Now, we studied this back in in Revelation in depth, but remember in the millennium, there are people that survive the tribulation that are not Jews, they are Gentiles, and they have a mission in the millennium to repopulate the earth exactly the same as Adam and Eve did. Remember what the Lord said, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth? 
to Adam and Eve. Now, that's a very interesting study. To replenish means it was full before. And you can go back and look at that. What was it full with? We have, I did a message on that a while back on let there be war. But the Lord, the Lord gave the earth to the angels to inhabit. That's why they cheer in Job when the earth was created. And in Jeremiah 4, the judgment on the earth when Satan rebelled between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, God set the earth and had a judgment of darkness and confusion, and he flooded the earth. And that's why in verse 2, the Holy Spirit has to brew over the waters of the deep, and the, the earth was confused and without form and void. Nothing God makes is confusing. It's always in order. Uh, you know that from the New Testament, for God's not the author of confusion. But you fast forward, remember, he tells the same thing to Noah, go forth and replenish the earth. He's going to tell the same thing to the people in the millennium, go forth and replenish, replenish the earth. Because many nations, not just Israel, will be his people at that time. They will be joined to him and look to the creator of the universe finally once and for all. He's going to be dwelling physically on the earth from the throne of David. In verse 12 here, and the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. This is the only place in the whole Bible the, the term Holy Land is used. You know, we use that phrase so much to speak of Israel, but this is the only place it's used, the Holy Land. In verse 13, be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Now, I don't know how many of you ever have experienced this, but when you are in the presence of Almighty God, it is hard to utter a word. And it is, it is very hard. You have no choice but to get onto your knees and worship. And creation knows that. Creation knows when Jesus steps in, when the Creator steps into that atmosphere. You can hear it. You can see it. Uh, creation changes at the sound of His voice. He spoke it into existence. And according to Colossians, it's only by his voice that every bit of it's being held together right now, even at the subatomic level. His words, his sound waves are literally holding every atom together, according to Colossians. And you know it. You can feel it when Jesus steps into the room. But he's going to raise up out of his holy habitation and return to earth. For every prophecy that Jesus fulfilled literally to return to earth or to come to earth the first time, there are at least eight of his second arrival. And that's the time that you and I are just barreling towards right now. You, are, you and I are, are barreling towards a time that he is going to call his ambassadors home in the rapture. And there's going to be a time of trouble after the restraining Holy Spirit is removed that is worse than any other time in history. And it, when we get to it in Zechariah 13, we're going to learn that two out of three Jews are killed during that time. And one out of three were killed during the, uh, World War II. So it's, an, it's indeed a time of trouble, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, that is unlike any other time on the earth, nor shall be ever again. And right now, you and I should have a, an urgency about us to get people into the ark before it's too late. The door to the church age is rapidly closing. And so you and I have got to be about getting serious in our walk, getting people born again, and getting them on the path to maturity of walking with Jesus. Not walking through life, lukewarm, 
and forsaking what God has for them. Because it's, again, it's one of my favorite of the Ten Commandments, right? That thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. You have a responsibility. Don't take his name and do nothing with it. But this is all prophesied in Hosea 5.15. Jesus raising up out of his habitation. Now, read this. Hosea 5.15. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earlier in the Hebrew, it's earnestly, with much vigor. And Jesus is speaking of, of Israel right here, right here. He will go and return to his place for how long? Until they acknowledge their offense. They missed him the first time when they should have known to the day from Daniel 9 and Zechariah 9.9 when Jesus rode in on a donkey that he was king. They should have known it. And he told them, had you recognized this, this day, it wouldn't have been John the Baptist. It would have been Elijah. And we would have been ushering in the kingdom, the kingdom age. But they rejected him. And so as a result, the Lord founded the church. You and I are grafted into this deep, incredible relationship where we are kings and priests to God. And we are the walking vessel of the Holy Spirit today. That's never happened before until Acts 2, when the Lord founded the church. But once Israel is pushed to the brink of destruction in the seven-year tribulation, they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And they're going to acknowledge their offense in crucifying him the first time. They're going to seek after him and cry out. Their prayer is actually Hosea chapter 6. And they're going to cry out, and then boom, you and I from Revelation 19, the windows of heaven open up and we ride back with the Lord now, look at Habakkuk 2, verse 20. But the Lord in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Psalm 68, verse 35. O God, thou art terrible out of the holy places. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. Jeremiah 25, verse 30. Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words and say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, you know, there's two sides of Jesus. There's the, the humble Messiah that came to take our place on the cross, to die for us, to wash our feet, to cleanse us, to give us a deep relationship with him. The other side is the line of the tribe of Judah that will roar from his holy habitation. And it's a roar that will shake the earth with the voice of God, and they will absolutely tremble at his return. And you and I will be with him. Okay, going back to this, many nations joined. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31 through 32. Now, this is after Jesus returns during that 75-day interval of time from Daniel 12. We studied that in depth in God's prophetic word when we, we did that series before this, before Nahum, I should say. But in the sheep and goat judgment, look at Matthew 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. Those are the nations that are remaining after the tribulation. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And if you remember, 
the basis of them being a sheep or a goat is based on their treatment of Israel during the tribulation. It's, a, it's incredible how God holds that promise over. Look at Joel 3, verse 2. I will also gather all nations and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there before my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Look at Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather all nations, the nations, that I may, I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now that happens at Armageddon, or Har-Megiddo. It's really just a battle. It's a staging ground. There's really no war. But this promise of Jesus ruling on the earth is all throughout the Bible. So as a reminder, this is reiterated to Mary in Luke. Remember when she's pregnant. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The throne of David, this political ruling throne, is promised throughout the Bible, and Jesus never sat on it when he was here the first time. Remember, Rome ruled the world. Uh, Israel was in oppression when Jesus was here the first time. But that promise will stand, and it's taken from 2 Samuel 7. The promise of this throne was established to David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. And look at verse 16, in the house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. David's throne has never been established forever, but it will. It will be established. God promised that the government would be upon Jesus' shoulders in Isaiah 9, 6. Remember, it's one of my favorite verses from Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder the government has never been on the shoulder of Jesus. Uh, right now, if you look around, if you think the government is on the shoulder of Jesus, uh, you, you don't understand his standard of righteousness because there is no way Jesus is going to allow murdering his children in the womb, uh, belittling and, and persecuting the, the nation of Israel, trying to divide their land, trafficking people all over the world, the corruption that is all over the earth right now, the desire to push in a one-world government upon and, and try to persecute and shut down the churches, God will not allow that much longer. And there's going to come a point that it gets to a, a, a tipping point that he calls us home. He turns the world over to their desire, which is a world without the church. That's what they want. They want a world without his people. They want a world from Psalms 2 where the heathen rage and say, let us break their, their bands asunder and cast their cords from us because we want to do what's right in our eyes, not what's right in the standard of God's eyes. And when you study Psalms 2, it's a dialogue from the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all sitting, and you can diagram out that psalm and write down who's speaking when. But Jesus is going to return and there's going to be something when the Holy Spirit is removed 
that gives the earth the arrogancy that they can take on the Son of God and take up arms against him and go to war against him. And they're going to call him out onto the battlefield and be sorely, sorely displeased at the result with his word when they just melt from Zechariah 14. But that's never happened. The government's not been on his shoulders. It's confirmed in 1 Chronicles 7, verse 12, he shall build me in a house and will establish his throne forever, forever. All throughout the Bible when God talks about this, it's forever. It's not for just a short period of time. It's not even just for the thousand years that Jesus reigns. It's forever. It's the thousand year millennium on the earth and then it's going to be for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth when God puts it all back together again. It's forever. In First Chronicles 17, verse 13, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forevermore. Look at First Chronicles 22, verse 10. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, when you look at this, David will be resurrected in the millennium. That's confirmed three or four times in the Old Testament that he will rule, he will be the king of Israel, while Jesus is the king of the earth over the entire earth, ruling as Jerusalem as the capital. Now, in Isaiah 55, verse 3, incline your ear and come unto me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. In Ezekiel 37, verse 25, and they shall dwell in the land I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. See, by the time Ezekiel, the Lord's writing through Ezekiel, David's been dead and long gone. But he will be their prince. He will be resurrected to new life when Jesus steps foot on the earth the second time. That's when all of the Old Testament saints are resurrected and get their resurrected bodies. You and I as the church get it at the rapture. In the twinkling of an eye, according to the New Testament, which is the smallest unit of time, it's the time at which the speed of light crosses your retina, that's how fast it is. But the Lord God will rule, and the servant David will be among them, from Ezekiel 34, verse 24 also. God confirms all of this under oath again in Psalms 132, verse 11, Psalms 89, 3, and 4. And he shall inherit Judah, his portion, from verses 12 and 13. Now look at Psalms 144, 5, in terms of be silent, O all flesh. Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. You can find this all throughout Micah, Habakkuk, all the Old Testament prophets, that the mountains will melt at the return of the Lord. When Jesus returns, he's going to literally split space and time itself, return to the earth and us with him, and the mountains will just melt before him. Creation Creation knows when the Messiah is there. Okay, as we're preparing for that time, though, you and I, we have a lot to do, right? You should be about the Father's business right now. It's not a time to kick up your feet. It's not a time to say, hey, the Lord's got this. We're going out in the rapture. Uh, that's, our, that's our escape plan, so what do we have to do? 
you know, that's, that's not the attitude to have. We, you and I need to have the attitude of time is short, and when you study prophecy in the Bible, it should give you the sense of urgency that at any moment you and I can go home, and so we need to live every second we can for the Lord. Because when he comes back to take you and I home, you're going to be doing something, right? There's going to be something you and I are doing. Now, if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, you'll be thankful that you lived that way because you lived with a sense of urgency, surrendered to God in everything you did in your life. And when that time happens, though, with a shout and he takes us home, that shout is going to reverberate all over the earth. It's going to wake up the dead in Christ. You're going to see them caught up into the air and just, bam, you'll be home instantaneously. And everything that you did in your life at that point will only matter what you did for the Lord and for the Spirit, in the Spirit, not in the flesh, and for the kingdom. And, and the only way you can figure that out is to build your faith. And faith is, what is it? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the substance is all that we hope for is Jesus. So you have to set everything on your life, in your life, on the rock that is the word of God and Jesus himself. And then everything else is built upon that. And it's important because in Hebrews eleven six it says, for without faith, it is impossible to please him. And the only way to get it, the only way to build up your faith is Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you've got to be in the word to build up your faith. And that's how you withstand the darts, the fiery darts of the enemy. Remember from Ephesians 6, the shield of faith, and then the, the sword of the spirit, which is the faith, the faith you have in the word, and that is the sharpest sword you can ever have. It, decides, it divides asunder the soul and the spirit. That's your only offense also. Remember Jesus in Luke, when Satan was tempting him? Every single time he responded with the word of God, it is written, it is written, it is written. And if you're not in it, you can't know it to combat Satan's attack on you and your family. So you've got to be in it so you can respond with, it is written. And I put these back in your notes again, but remember, we've got to take your call serious and without hesitation because you have a greater inheritance than you can ever imagine waiting for you on the other side of this. Some, some will inherit cities. There are five crowns listed in the Bible. There are so many rewards to the overcomer in Revelation. You are serving the king for a purpose and that purpose is to be a good steward of what he has for you and I on the other side of this. You're going to be given the opportunity to steward something for his kingdom. And that's amazing when you think about it. Now, the bottom line of that is, can the Lord trust you now in the little things so that he can trust you with the great things in the future? And the more you're obedient and the more God trusts you, the more opportunity you're going to get to serve him in a big way, and that's the goal. And it doesn't have to, look, you don't have to be Billy Graham filling stadiums to be obedient. You just have to be where you are placed in this time. God chose to put you in this time. He could have put you anywhere in history. He chose to put you in this time, in 2023, in this location in the United States, in this state in Oklahoma, to do something for him. And that, that something could be as simple as witnessing to your neighbor. It could be as simple as delivering meals to people. It could be as simple as being the hands and feet of Jesus and just praying for people. 
It could be as simple as getting alone in your prayer closet and lifting your children up. It doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be filling a stadium with 100,000 people to be serving God. Okay, it starts with something small and it grows to something mighty for the kingdom. So just be encouraged in that. And if you're here and you're not born again, I mean, what in the world are you waiting on? But uh, Romans 10, 9, it's very simple. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In that instant, you are born again in the spirit, according to John 3, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And how can one be unborn once they're born? You can't. That's the key. You can never lose your salvation. If you can lose it, that means it was Jesus on the cross plus a bunch of other things that you didn't do. And Jesus is all sufficient. He alone could take the penalty of sin, pay for it, and give you a, make a ransom so that you and I can be in the best family you could ever imagine. And when you are born again, there is nothing you can do to lose it. The question is, do you take your call serious then as an ambassador? That's the question. So as, as much if I ever wanted to, I could never gather all the wealth in the world or do anything to be not, to be not born when I was in 1981, right? I could never not go back and, go back and be uh, unborn and not be the son of Carrie and Richard Freeman. I couldn't do it, no matter what I wanted to do. And when you are born again, you are born a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, and you can never take that away. So don't let the enemy confuse you in that matter. If the, enemy, if the enemy wants to attack you, he'll try to attack you some in that regard. That were you really saved? Were you really born again? Did Jesus really die for you? You know, you rebuke that with the word of God and say, the Lord rebuke you. You know, get back, Satan. You have no authority in my life. You can't speak into me. I'm a child of the king and I am living for him and he will flee from you. Okay, there's our email address. If anyone needs anything, please reach out. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for this time together. God, we praise you. We thank you for Zachariah. We thank you, Lord, for the measuring line and the man, you, Jesus, in the flesh that will come again to dwell with your people and to set up a kingdom for your name. We look forward to that day. We praise you that you've written everything down in your word for us, that we have everything we need right there in that book to stand for you and to grow in our relationship with you. And God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of it. And Lord, we do lift up Linda to you and pray a speedy recovery. God, as she's still recovering from those surgeries, we pray that you would lay her hands upon her as the great physician, raise her up to strength and great health, and bring her back into this fellowship to be with your people, to surround her, and to strengthen one another. Lord, we thank you for these families. God, as you are building and knitting together a community by your spirit and your spirit alone that can lean on one another, that can trust one another, that can pray for one another, that can help equip one another and encourage one another to press on to the prize of the high calling of our lives in Jesus, in you, Lord, from Philippians 3. So be with us as we leave this place. And we thank you again for this time together, God. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.